Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington. I teach Old Testament as well. I'm also joined by our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Tommy Keene, our dean of students and professor of Old Testament, Peter Lee, our instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in the D.C. area, Paul Jean, and our professor of systematic theology, Gray Sutanto. And we're continuing on in this series on the Apostles' Creed, and we're getting near the end now. We're in, we're in the, last, the last chapter, as it were, of the Apostles' Creed. And uh, we were talking about this earlier. We can actually trust our, our writers uh, to guide us as to how we ought to read the Apostles' Creed. And, and we notice that there are three sections that begin with the phrase, I believe, and this is the third section. And so I think that we're meant to read this as an introduction to a new topic in a way and describing what our belief in God looks like. And we also discern here and kind of looking at these discursive markers, these I believes, we discern a clear Trinitarian shape to the Apostles' Creed. So we start with God, the Father Almighty. We then go to the Son and now we start this last section, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. And so I think we're meant to read this as, as all kind of everything that comes after is subsumed under this topic of the Holy Spirit. And it's an important topic, one that we were discussing earlier before the podcast, is, is one that gets perhaps missed in a lot of the church today, at least a lot of the Reformed church. And so we want to talk through a little bit of just this general topic of the Holy Spirit. Why does this get special mention as one of the key elements of the Christian faith. And so I want to start by throwing that to Dr. Lee. Why give a special section on the Holy Spirit here in our Apostles' Creed? Yeah, Scott, um, it's definitely important. I mean, it's, if we, as we talk about the, uh, like particularly our work of salvation, uh, we oftentimes very easily neglect the work of the Spirit. And in many ways, it's sort of the unfortunate uh, side effect of trying to be very Christ-centered. We neglect uh, oftentimes the Father, His role in our work of redemption, and then oftentimes for that reason also the work of the Holy Spirit in our work of redemption. And, and that is a really uh, unfortunate thing. Brothers, re- help me, remi- remind me, but I do recall that in some cer- uh, theological circles, it wasn't Calvin referred to as a theologian of the Holy Spirit? And to a certain degree, the reason why was because, you know, he, in his section on our union with Christ, he really uh, dedicated the idea that how we are united to Christ is through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that a lot of the, uh, the work of Christ that he uh, accomplished is only applied to us when we are drawn in union to him. And that union is, is by and large, the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And since, you know, Calvin's work on union was, is so tantamount and so uh, seminal uh, that he's so recognized as, as one who really recognizes the work of the Spirit. And, and that's something, you know, that we ought to be very uh, appreciative of and definitely uh, thank the Lord for and thank the work of the Spirit for in his work of uniting us to, uh, to the, the accomplished work of Christ. Scott, I think your opening comments about the Trinitarian arrangement of the uh, creed is important because in my very limited 
opinion, it seems that there's this general perception that the Trinity is more of a kind of academic or philosophical, but otherwise irrelevant um, doctrine that you might say elite theologians think through. But I think that without having at least some working understanding, working knowledge of the Holy Spirit and the Trinity as a whole, we don't really understand the gospel because we have to understand it in terms of how the Father, Son, and Spirit work together. And so generally what I you know, counsel, you might say, lay to cons consider, because they tend to say, well, you know, I've never really understood the Trinity, but I'm fine. You know, I, like my Christian, like I'm walking with Jesus, right? I would suggest that if the Bible goes out of its way to underscore the Trinity, as well as the confessions and creeds, then maybe the better starting point is to assume its importance rather than dismissing it. And then after you have assumed its importance to go from there so that incrementally your knowledge of the Trinity, in particular, the spirit increases. Yeah, I think in response to someone who says, you know, the Trinity seems to be incredibly irrelevant to me, but as long as I'm walking with Jesus, I'm fine. I mean, even that particular claim and statement, I'm walking with Jesus, that only makes sense in a Christian way, in an orthodox way, if the Trinity is true. The reason why Jesus is the center of your faith is because he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the divine son of God. If he's just any other human being, then of course you'd be committing idolatry at that point. And the reason why you can walk with Christ, even though he is ascended above and he's no longer here on earth, is precisely because you're doing this through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is what unites you to Jesus. The Spirit is what makes possible, therefore, your fellowship and union with Jesus Christ. And the reason as well why the Spirit does this is because Jesus Christ, who's ascended above, is interceding on the right hand of the Father, right? Where, therefore, the Father approves of you because you are in Jesus Christ. So the very simple statement that I'm walking with Christ, and that's the center of my Christian life, really only has meaning if the Trinitarian faith is true. And I think another uh, feature of the uh, creed here that we got to point out is that just because the Spirit is mentioned in this third article here, kind of later in the creed, is not meant to signify that the Spirit is less important than the other two persons. You really kind of see this signaled by the fact that the Spirit was already mentioned in the conception of Jesus Christ, in the, in the, in the conception narrative of the Virgin Mary, right? So even before the Spirit was invoked here in Article 3, the confession, the creed here has the spirit in view, and we got to therefore keep in view how the works of the Trine God are ultimately indivisible. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how expansive of a role the spirit plays throughout redemptive history. And we, we see the spirit present in creation, and even in the creed, creation is sort of accredited to the Father, right? And yet, when we go into Genesis 1, we see that it's the spirit, it's the divine spirit that is hovering over the surface of the deep, that is the presence of God in creation in a way. We see this throughout the scriptures in the Psalter, particularly Isaiah, who unpacks this theme of the spirit of God going out and doing things, being at work not only in creation, but in the sustenance of creation, right? Bringing about, you know, natural, natural events and that that general kind of far-reaching notion of the spirit sort of undergirds that i think that new testament teaching that we find where the spirit's at work much more expansively in just revealing god uh, the, the spirit is at work in as we saw in the, in the creed already you know 
the incarnation. It's through the Holy Spirit that Christ is incarnate in the Virgin Mary. We see Paul use the Spirit to talk about the thing that binds together the church, whether you're looking at Ephesians 4, where the church is kind of bound together as a temple, sort of a collective body bound together by one spirit, or in other passages, 1 Corinthians, where he says, whatever you do with your body, you know, you have to be mindful that you're doing it as if with the temple, you know, the temple, the, the house of the spirit of God is now your body individually, just as in Ephesians, it's the, it's the collective of the church. Now it's you individually. This is because the spirit is indwelling you elsewhere. First Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the fact that you can't say that Jesus is Lord. You can't even say the creed, we might say, and believe it if it's not the Spirit saying it within you. You know, it's just very far-reaching notion of the Spirit that I think blows out of the bounds of what a lot of people consider to be the work of the Spirit today, um, you know, maybe in, in sort of charismatic experience or something like that. But recognizing actually me saying Jesus is Lord or the church singing worship and meaning it is actually the testimony of the Spirit. Scott, it's a great point. I I appreciate your mention of uh, the Spirit's charismatic work. Uh, my church is Presbyterian, and in the past, we've had individuals come and after service ask, uh, we're curious, and the, is your church charismatic? And I think usually when they're asking that, uh, they're asking whether we believe in miracles, healings, and so forth. And to their surprise, I say, oh, absolutely, absolutely, because... I have found the Westminster Short Catechism very helpful because it really states that it's the spirit that works faith in us, convinces us, convinces us of sin and misery and so forth. And so in our estimation, conversion itself is nothing less than a grand miracle. And so I think it's very fitting for even Presbyterians to say, of course, we're charismatic because conversion itself is a grand miracle. You know, we, we can say there's no way a person, as you just said, Scott, can believe unless the spirit does that supernatural work of convincing us of sin and misery. And just as an aside, I think as an application for pastors, uh, I have meditated a lot on, I think it's Westminster Catechism um, 31. When you think about what effectual calling is, it does keep you humble in ministry because it reminds you that no matter how hard you work, right? In the end, uh, because salvation belongs to the Lord, uh, we can do no good thing unless the spirit is working in our ministries. It's really helpful. And it reminds me kind of going back to Scott's point earlier, which was a great point about the Trinitarian shape of, uh, of the creed. It's a reminder that the persons of the Trinity are working together. These are not like independent lines of salvation. So, you know, Jesus forgives me. And then the spirit gives me these kinds of spiritual experiences, uh, conversion experiences, something like that. But these, these components are, are intimately tied together in the work of salvation. So the, what, what does the spirit do? The spirit connects me to Christ. That's the spirit's role is to you know, affect union and all the various components of union. You, know, you see that in John 15, John 17, for the first Corinthians passages that Scott mentioned, what the spirit does is connect me to Christ and my union with Christ so that I have, uh, so that, you know, 
to, to live by the spirit is to live as a follower of Christ and to follow Christ is to receive his spirit. Those two things are, are tied together. Scott, you know, you also, again, you, you made a great point earlier, and I, I just wanted to kind of run with it a little bit. In addition to what both um, Paul and, and Tommy were saying, uh, when you mentioned that the, the concept that we as believers are the temple of God and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's so much, as you know, so much Old Testament background to that, that you really have to grasp to appreciate what that means, both in terms of the concept of the temple and the spirit's uh, relationship with the temple, you know, the remember at the uh, the tabernacle when it was completed, it was the the glory of God that filled the tabernacle, and then filled the holy of holies, and then was seated under the uh, the cherubim wings of the ark of the covenant. You know, Dr. Klein, my teacher, Dr. Klein, you often refer to the uh, that pillar of cloud there as being associated with the spirit of God. So it's really the spirit that came to fill the tabernacle. In First Kings eight, you know, it's the same thing, except it's not the tam- t- tabernacle. It's the, it's now the more larger uh, temple of God. That is the dwelling of God. You know, this is the, the tabernacle, the temple. You know, is is the holiness of those structures is associated with the presence of God there, and it's why it had to be so sanctified and or uh, uh, preserved and protected. And how you remember, even in the Old Testament, only the high priest is allowed into that Holy of Holies, you know, just that one day of the year. Uh, and how all of that just opens up in the New Testament now through Christ, who is the true tabernacle, true temple, and thus the the dwelling of the Spirit of God, the glory presence of God. And how now in, in union with Christ, we are also that dwelling presence uh, of God, right? The um, the, one of the weird things, remember, about the church is that we don't have a temple in the most, you know, conventional sense of the word. But in fact, we do have a temple. We are the temple of God. We are the dwelling of the presence of God. That is this Holy Spirit. You see, when you think of it that way and think of the biblical theology of the spirit there, that's that's just wondrous. It's just a such a mind-blowing, uh, blessed idea that we are that holy dwelling presence of God because of the work um, of Christ. And um, it's beautiful. I, every time I talk about it and think about it, it just kind of gives me goosebumps a bit. Yeah, Peter, like, no, I appreciate what you're saying because it goes, it fits perfectly with Ephesians 4, where Paul talks about how we are to live as the church of Christ. And the reason why I think your emphasis on the tabernacle, God's uh, presence with believers is very helpful is because one of the questions people ask in relation to the spirit is what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? And the way Paul answers it, at least in Ephesians 4, is surprisingly ordinary. You know, he basically says, you know, speak truth to one another, uh, let go of all bitterness and so forth. And so if ever, you know, people wonder, well, what does it mean really for me not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but to please the Holy Spirit? It's interesting that Paul's answer is basically because the Spirit dwells with us as a people, then just love one another, stop uh, biting one another, forgive one another. And so I think your comments really uh, provide a kind of tangible application of then what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. I think that's the only way we can understand those passages in the Old Testament, for instance, like, you know, I've been doing a lot of work on Ezekiel recently and you know, Ezekiel has this temple that is going to be reestablished in the restoration. And if you're reading it 
sort of literally, I mean, imagine as, a, as an Israelite, Judean waiting for the restoration. The, the temple is quite grand. It's quite impressive. It's kind of cosmic. And then you notice that there's water bubbling out from underneath its foundation that spreads over the face of the earth and turns all the salt water and bitter water into fresh water so that life can thrive. And then as the temple, as the river flows, it gets broader and deeper as it covers the earth. And you start reading and you realize this is talking about something more than just a building, right? This is talking about some kind of obvious, uh, obvious garden Genesis, you know, uh, allusions there. And then he's commenting on the fact that in this new land, the Gentiles will be given a portion of the land alongside Israel, which didn't happen in the first conquest. And the prince will be set there, the king, and his, uh, the city will be named the Lord is there. You know, how do we find a fulfillment of this apart from Paul's doctrine of the church, right? The idea that the spirit is indwelling the church as it spreads over the face of the earth, converted Gentiles and Judeans spreading over the face of the earth, bringing God's life-giving presence, his water to the whole of the earth, therefore fulfilling that original you know, uh, trajectory of the garden to fill the earth and subdue it. How can that happen apart from the temple now becoming the people, right? The people of God, the body who are indwelled by one spirit. You know, it's really a beautiful, it's a, it's a beautiful kind of application or fulfillment of these, of what's being said in this kind of Old Testament prophetic apocalyptic way. Which gets at the kind of the heart of the difference between kind of the Christian experience, the new covenant experience of of faith and the old covenant experience of faith there, there there's continuity there but you know jesus tells uh, the woman at the well there will be a day you know right now you have to take a pilgrimage right now you have to go to the temple and it's this temple and not that temple it's this mountain not that mountain but there will be a day when all can worship in spirit and in truth and that that reality is now because of the resurrection and ascension of christ because of pentecost that where Jesus poured out his spirit upon his people in this climactic, redemptive, historical fulfillment of Joel, of Ezekiel, uh, those promises now fulfilled in the coming of the spirit on, uh, upon his people, we now gather, wherever we gather, we gather with Christ. We are, we are perpetually welcomed into the heavenly tabernacle. I was thinking, Peter, while you were talking about the tabernacle and the old covenant, you know, much of it is set up in this way to kind of say, yes, I'm present with my people, but, you know, be careful, don't touch anything and don't stay long, right? And then the new covenant, the doors are blown wide open. And we're told uh, in Hebrews 10, draw near with confidence to the heavenly holy place because your, you know, the son, the high priest dwells there constantly, is always in the presence of God. And so therefore I can always be in the presence of God. I think this is a good insight into why it is that the next article is on, I believe the Holy Catholic church, right? The reason why the church could be truly Catholic could be unlimited by a particular space or time shows that the spirit is truly at work, uh, taking away that barrier between us and God. I remember um, Johnny Gibson at Westminster. He would always say that in the old covenant, the church, was a centrifugal force, but then in the new covenant, the church has become a centripetal force. There's this outward movement and no longer therefore is our Christian religion tethered to 
Israel or Jerusalem, but rather we are the new Israel. We are the new city, precisely because the spirit now no longer dwells in temples, but rather dwells in the church, wherever the church is. And this reminds me of something that Boving said as well. This is why the church is truly Catholic in the sense that it is completely universal in scope. The church can look very different in different places and different times, but yet at the same time, it is the same confession that binds all of us. So that we're following along well with the creed's agenda, working out of the spirit is, is this idea of ecclesiology that then moves on to soteriology, the forgiveness of sins, and then the resurrection of the body. So what we could call eschatology, perhaps, or the last, the last outworking of soteriology. What do we do to that point? What do we do with the fact that the creed doesn't mention, for instance, the role of the spirit in inspiring and illuminating scripture? which in the Reformed tradition is often the thing we talk about the most when we're talking about the Spirit. Now, how ought we to think about that? Is this not something that the Creed would have affirmed? Well, I think as, as Gray already mentioned, you know, the, it's not as if this is the only spot where the Creed discusses the Holy Spirit, and particular in connection with the, you know, the conception of the Christ, we have this idea embedded there that we can extend elsewhere, this idea of the Trinitarian work of salvation, the work of the Spirit in and through Christ, even in his earthly life. And so one of the things that we see there, for example, and, and we talked about this, I think, in the Christology episode, when we talked about the Incarnation, that Jesus was the man of the spirit and the spirit guided the God man Christ, even in his own life. Um, it, it's after the temptation of Christ, the spirit leads Christ through the temptation and then into his ministry so that his public preaching and teaching is empowered by um, the spirit. I think we could extend that to say that all of scripture is that, you know, it's, is, is scripture as we are often want to call it scripture is the word of Christ. It's, we have a red letter Bible. Our whole, our whole Bible is red letter. Um, and in that sense, it's also Holy Spirit. It's, it's given to us, breathed out by the Spirit of God. And though maybe the confession doesn't uh, mention it explicitly, the theology behind it is there in, in its Christology. I wonder, Tommy, as, I was, as you were just talking, that you know, if the creed is, is more soteriologically focused and the role then of each person in the Trinity and the role of redemption. In other words, it's not a full-blown systematic theology on this on the work of the Spirit. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually, we did this as a church. We talked about the creed, um, and somebody somebody raised their hand. You know, we're kind of working through the Apostles' Creed. Somebody raises their hand and goes, "Now, why is the gospel not in the Apostles' Creed?" And I was kind of scratching my head, like, "What do they mean?" But I think what they what they've noticed about the creed is that it it is it isn't focused on like justification by faith alone. It's not trying to get at our salvation through this kind of Lutheran lens of uh, you know you're justified by faith and how you get saved, right? But rather how God accomplished salvation. That's the focus of the creed. It's more redemptive historical in many ways. Uh, focused on the event of salvation and its its fulfillment in Jesus's death and resurrection, and then the sending of the Spirit. So uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I do think the the creed isn't interested in a full systematic theological presentation of a uh, theology or of soteriology of how of how you get saved, but rather 
how God accomplished his redemption in space and time through Christ and ascending in the spirit. Yeah, I guess we could make the same case like uh, or there's no reference to providence in the creed. Uh, so, you know, it's not so much that they are denying inerrancy, perhaps, as is just the intent of the creed doesn't require us to mention inerrancy or inspiration, excuse me. So we uh, perhaps uh, wouldn't want to say the creed denies something that it doesn't address just simply because it doesn't address it. I think that's a great way of putting it. Like the function of creeds is to you know, summarize particular teachings in, its, in a particular time in history. And more than likely, it was like uh, responding to you know, what was going on during that time. So I, I think that just keeping in mind the main function of creeds is helpful. I like too how we're asking the question, what is the question that the creed is answering? You know, this is a, it's an important part of hermeneutics to ask yourself that whenever you're reading a passage in scripture, what is the problem that the author is addressing? He may not be asking the same or answering the same question that you're asking. And it's really interesting. And we haven't, we've been sort of in a way this during this whole podcast unpacking that, but what is the question? The question seems to be sort of twofold. What, who, what is the nature of God? Because there's this clear Trinitarian shape to the whole creed. And what is the salvation that he has affected, that he has brought about for mankind? And that seems to be the question that the creed is dealing with, the nature of God and the redemptive work that he's affecting for all mankind. Challenge me on that if I'm wrong, but as I'm kind of looking through this, this seems to be the issues that he's dealing with or the, the, the creed is dealing with. Well, I want to reiterate, actually, that I think, Scott, you're right. Everybody here has been right. But I do think that this does bring up an issue that maybe controversially, if I'm saying this to some listeners, it's not enough to just be a creedal Christian. I think we need to be a confessional Christian. I think this shows that we need not just the creeds of the early church, but also the confessions of the Reformation. I think what we see in the creeds is, yes, this great overarching theology of not only the nature of God, the identity of Christ, the identity of the Holy Spirit, and their particular works in the economy of redemption. But at the same time, there is need for more detail. There is need for more fleshing out. There's need for more codification of what it is the church ought to believe. And so anytime I hear an endorsement of a kind of mere Christianity for my piety or mere Christianity just purely for my church, I would actually argue that's not enough. We need more clear answers on how do we do baptism? How do we understand the nature of justification? How do we understand the nature of sanctification? These are really important questions. They really do impinge on the Christian life. And so, yes, the creeds are absolutely foundational, absolutely bedrock, uh, and we need them. But at the same time, it's not sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient for our ministry, for our lives, and therefore for our proper understanding of the scriptures and God. Well, I think that's a great point. There, there's this tendency, right, in the, particularly in the modern church, perhaps, to because of life and its complication, to sort of be reductionistic about the Christian faith and to say, I, I just want to take one snapshot from church history and sort of say, that's, that's all it is. That's all I know for sure or something. And you see that when you hear sometimes people talk about, you know, a, a sort of Nicene Christian, Christian faith or uh, merely, you know, the mere Christianity. While there's a, there is a utility to that kind of conversation, we have to always remember, of course, that we're called to teach and to profess and to set ourselves under the whole counsel of God. And as we look at the work of the Spirit to illuminate scriptures to communities throughout history 
and we find that in the creed and we find it in the other you know, other ecumenical councils and we find that in the confession the westminster confession of faith it helps us find these these historically seated uh, expressions of the teaching of scripture and that's that's the value of tradition and that's why we we deprive ourselves and starve ourselves in a way when we ignore the whole of tradition uh, in our interpretation and our understanding of scripture and i think the creed gives us some rationale for that when we see that it is the spirit uh, who constitutes the ecclesiological body of christ it's the spirit who affects salvation it's the spirit who draws us towards our sure resurrection I think it'd be great to have an elective on the work of the Holy Spirit, a class that really can uh, flush out uh, a lot of these uh, details, Gray. Because there's a lot of stuff we haven't covered yet. And, and you know, and, and that's what's so edifying, I think, and encouraging. Just a little, we've talked about it here, just opens the door on so many things that's underappreciated, which is so edifying and encouraging. And yet still so much, you know, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You know, what does that mean? I think we, um, the Spirit helping us to groan in Romans 8 and uh, so many other just uh, really great things to, to discuss that we just don't have time to do. Yep. Spirit and common grace, the Spirit and creation, lots of the various systematic theological loci that we have. We can definitely take a pneumatological lens and go through all of them. I love the idea of a class focusing on the work of the Holy Spirit. Of course, our systematic theology curriculum deals with the various work of the Spirit, both in our Christ and soteriology class and in our ecclesiology and sacraments class. But it would be useful to sit down and, and discuss exactly who the person of the Holy Spirit is and what the person of the Holy Spirit is about the work of doing. So I love the idea for a class like that. Speaking of classes at RTS, I do want to draw attention for our audience to a class that we're going to be offering next fall. And this class is focusing on teaching women to teach, whether that's teaching in a large group setting or in Bible studies or elsewhere. There's been a lot of interest amongst our student body and people in our community um, to offer some more resources for women teachers in the church. And so this course is going to be offered next fall, and it's going to be focused on what are the skills needed to teach scripture, but not only that, giving an opportunity, giving sort of some avenues and some location where people can sit down and actually exercise the work of teaching and then have friends, you know, as it were, uh, sharpen iron, iron sharpening iron as people gather around, hear you teach, and then offer feedback and encouragement. So that's what we have planned for next fall. That's fall 2021. Keep an eye on our RTS website and our Facebook groups for more information about a class like that. And we'll definitely be talking about that uh, in this space as well. So it's been wonderful talking with everyone today about the work of the Holy Spirit. Of course, we're not done. We still have several more articles to go through in the creed to work out exactly what it is the Spirit is doing in the work of redemption for the church and in the new heavens and new earth. And so we look forward to having that conversation with you all. Until then, take care.
we want to spread the word about the RTS Faculty Podcast. That's mostly been done by word of mouth. And so we want to encourage you, if you are enjoying this resource, if you're a regular listener, please don't forget to subscribe to us as a podcast, to rate us as a podcast, and even to write reviews on iTunes or wherever else the podcast uh, is available for you. And that way we can help get the word out about what's going on here in this conversation and what's going on here at RTS Washington. So we'd encourage you rate, review, and subscribe to the RTS Faculty Podcast. Get the word out about good theology to your friends and others in your community. Take care. I could say a little Ask. something about the practicality of it. Well, that'd be good. Yeah. Let, let, Gray, let Gray do his theological thing. And then and then Tommy with the practice. This is a Gray and Tommy show. I like it. Paul and Peter and I will just get off the call now. And Timo's going. Well, I mean, part of it's because, you know, the Holy Spirit wasn't active in the Old Testament. So y'all just don't have as much to. Yes, to yes. Right. Good point. Okay.